welcome to the teen episode of Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Before we begin, I just wanted to sneak in that tomorrow on Halloween Day, I will be doing a live stream at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time with the Gurren Brothers Hat Company over on Instagram. That's G-O-O-R-I-N. I'll be reading my cursed hat story, and before that, I'll be doing a little Q&A about how I thought of the story and just A in some cues. And I was also so graciously invited by my friend Andy to participate in the Let's Not Meet Halloween live stream on Twitch tomorrow at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I'll be hanging out in the chat, so come say hi. Um, there's going to be other guests. I'm ac- I actually don't know who the other guests are yet. I know that I'll be the second story in the lineup. And so I'm going to be just as surprised as you are. So come say hi to Andy and me and the other people. It'll be fun. I had so much fun last time on the live stream. It's, it's so much fun getting to kind of casually talk to all of you. It's great. So now let's talk about these teen stories. I am always so blown away by the talent and inventiveness of all these young minds. I really hope that there are some kids or teens out there listening right now who get inspired to write your own stories. When I was a young person, I would write constantly. I would write well into the night. I had insomnia and I remember several times my mom knocking on my door and telling me that I was typing too loud and keeping her awake. I really hope I can find, dig up one of my old stories. I wrote this very long, well, it was long at the time. It's probably not that long. This epic tale about these immortals who had different goth type powers oh my god if i can find it it will go into the next teen episode and you can all see my teen writing it'll be fun before we begin i received a message from one of my contributing authors sophie she asked me to send her mom giselle luck on her upcoming chemotherapy so sending you love and light giselle from me and the whole scary to sleep community now on to the scares. What the Actress Hid in the Mist by Ava New England, 1982 The hotel was called the New England. It was time-worn now. It stood on a patch of hilly ground. It was begging for guests these days. One of these, this autumn, would be a young actress called May. May Gardner. Who wouldn't notice her? Her fine, tan-colored hair gently covered her shoulders. Today, she wore her best shoulder-padded jacket. She wanted to look her best. She would be playing the role of a great 1950s movie star. She was deep in thought about the filming ahead when a breeze brushed past her from behind. The feeling of another presence. She turned around and there was only the autumn mist sweeping in and over the New England woodland. Walking up to the hotel's main door, she saw the handwritten sign. Cast and crew report to 2nd AD. Enter through the parking lot to the left. She walked around the hotel and noticed what she hadn't before. The hotel's swing park. It was a bleak, secretive little swing park that sat at the top of the hill. The rubber swings hung from their metal frame, creaking and groaning, and a young boy was perched on one of them, swinging himself with mindless nudges, surrounded by the heavy, churning mist. May was unable to see much. The trees above stood exposed and bare, swaying in the mellow wind. Hello, May said. The boy watched her, but said nothing. May didn't know what to say or do. The boy looked at her intently, but said nothing. May continued. Are you with the crew? Are you cast? The boy continued to push himself on the swing. The swing creaked, and he looked to the hotel. She's waiting for you, he said suddenly. Then he turned his head from her and looked out towards the misty road. 
Quickening her pace and nearing the hotel, May made her way into the parking lot. It was down a gliding, sunken path that led under the hotel, a dark, buried, concrete coffin. She felt like she had descended into the underworld. The air was bleak and chilly, and it entombed her. May's heels clicked as she made her way to the set, and she felt as lonely as the two or three cars seemingly abandoned there. Their dead headlights followed her as she quickened her pace to the service elevator. She held the key to the elevator and went over the code as her agent had given her. The dim lights flickered distantly with a cloudy, hesitant glint. May looked up momentarily at the blinking lights in the ceiling, which was a claustrophobic blanket covering her. Suddenly, she stopped and looked into the corners of the gloom. She could swear she saw a small figure standing there. The shape was thick against the darkness and looked somber. She couldn't see clearly. Had the boy followed her? Nay? She turned at the male voice. Martin Gold was jogging lightly towards her. Before replying to Martin, she turned back to the shadows. The little figure was gone. Oh, Martin, hi. The two hugged, kissed on both cheeks. <laughs> I thought you were the little boy. She tried to laugh. Little boy? Martin looked quizzical. May looked to where the figure had been. Nothing, she said. In the hotel foyer, the cameras had been set up, looming over the set. The crew waited disinterestedly. The other cast players were also there, eager to meet both their leading lady and the famous star she was playing. Taking her by the elbow, Martin smiled enthusiastically. Angela's dressing room is this way. She wants to meet you. Shouldn't I settle in first? Angela wants to meet you. She's seen my test footage, right? Martin nodded. (laughs) Of course. And she thought you were perfect. Here we are. Inside the dressing room, Angela Forbes sat in her chair. Her coiled, tinted hair was tight in a style that was still very 1950s. It framed her mask-like face. Angela's face was always drawing attention, even now in her 70s. Not in a good way, yet not bad, either. There was always something about Angela Forbes... Her face was giving nothing away. May stepped in. The cramped dressing table sat furtively against the brick walls of the makeshift dressing room. Pivoting the chair to the side, May sat down. The wide mirrors looked back at her with her own face, and Angela's also, like two generations of the same woman, surrounded by blinding light bulbs of stardom. Angela's imaginative eyes glistened suspiciously as she placed two framed photographs on the dressing table. They were of herself in her 1950s heyday, all glamorous makeup and smoky backgrounds. Now Angela smiled at May. Oh, my dear, you must be May. Where have you been? I've just arrived. There was a holdup on the way here. The roads are very misty. Yes, they can be. Angela kept smiling. May watched the icon smile. She had been watching Angela Forbes for months now. All her back catalog of movies, movies from her heyday, her early entry into Hollywood before the awards, and endorsements, even a rarely seen piece of footage of a theatrical rehearsal for an off-Broadway play when Angela had been only 19. May looked at the photos on the dressing table and realized she did not know this woman at all. There was a young boy, a young boy, in the swing park. Angela's voice was unsure. A young boy? Her face dropped and then, just as quickly, found itself again. Surely not. The hotel's closed for filming. 
May had a sinking feeling, but only said, He must be cast. Yes, an extra. There were children here in 1952. Angela's face was as still as dead light. May couldn't suddenly look at the actress's face. Instead, she said to the reflection, He said you were waiting for me. He said I was waiting for you? Well, he said she's waiting for you. Angela changed the subject. What do you want to know about me? You're playing me after all. What was it like filming here in 1952? May asked, but she kept thinking of the boy and of the look in Angela's eyes now. It was a stressful time. I had given up so much for my career. Your marriage had just ended. Yes. You were both very quiet about why. And, of course, Jim died only months after the divorce. In 53. Now suddenly, Angela shut May out, ending the conversation in a rush. We will do more of this later. The uncomfortable feeling that had grown told May now was the time to leave. Thanks again, and... Angela had turned her back on May. Thanks. Opening the dressing room door, May thought, What was that about? She stepped onto the floor of the foyer, and she suddenly stood stock still confused. She couldn't help but notice something was different. The tiles on the floor had changed. The room was filled with staff. Where had they come from all of a sudden? The foyer was strange and bizarre, May thought. It hummed with chatter. What she thought were the extras hummed with chatter. They were in costume, beautiful 1950s attire, double-breasted suits for the men and tailored dresses for the women. Where are the crew? The polished floor sparkled with newness. There was not one single person that could be recognized, apart from one. A younger-looking Angela, standing stylishly and confidently. But Angela's in her dressing room, yet there she stood, tall and slim, beside a silent business-like man. They were leaving the foyer now, quickening their pace as they were nearing the revolving doors. Thank you, Jim, darling. May raced after the pair. She pushed the doors. They spun her around slowly, and a strange dizziness took hold of her. Round and round, round and round. To find herself, not at the front of the hotel, but in the middle of a thin forest road. The silver moon was burning bright through the darkened trees, focusing on an upcoming skidding car that was out of control. There was an abrupt smack, bringing the car to a violent stop. May covered her ears in horror, but stayed silent. Breaking out of the car, Angela and the man stood and stared. A little, limp figure was lying motionless on their dashboard. Both heads swung round, shifting their attention to May. The man suddenly swung his flashlight in May's direction, momentarily blinding her. May stumbled back, her ankles twisting in the vines by the roadside. She fell with a thud. Instants later, May found herself back at the hotel swing park, settled on a swing. The creaking of the swing was constant as she swung herself with anxious nudges. An uncomfortable sensation filled the air, lifting May from the swing, demanding she move towards her own car. It was late evening and everyone was gone now and the hotel felt lonely and bleak.
On the secretive and dark road, on her way home, May drove her car too carefully. She struggled to distract herself from what she had just witnessed, trying to change her focus to the somber sky thickening around her. The New England mist was never-ending. Suddenly, there was one small outline in front of her, a childlike figure at the side of the road. She swerved, but just as suddenly as the figure appeared, it disappeared. She must be tired and seeing things. It had been such a full and strange day. And then, the car thudded violently to a halt. She had hit something. She got out of the car, shaking with fright. She looked into the gloom, dimly lit by the car's headlights. Nothing. But there was a dent in the car's hood. She shivered. It was then that she felt a tug on her sleeve. She froze in fear, knowing what she was about to see. Eventually, she turned slowly around. The silent boy stood before her. He took her hand, and his hand was cold and dead. He pulled her in the direction of the woods. Her gut was telling her to go with him, but the thickening forest terrified her. Tugging May, the boy pointed furiously at the forest and continued to move towards it. She settled on following him, and crept with him through the chilly night forest, until he came to an abrupt stop. She looked at him, so desperately wanting to know what he needed from her. A tear slipped from his innocent, fearful eyes down his pale cheek, dropping to the forest floor. And as it did so, the boy disappeared. He left behind only decades-old bones, stripped of flesh and bleached by years of exposure and animals. The little bones were delicate and tragic and the wide, gaping eye holes glared back at her. They glared into her. They begged her to help him. This is She's in London by 13-year-old Jayaniah Ward. She said it was just a toy. It looked strange, but I trusted her. Now I'm stuck in 1999 with no way out. I'm confused and I have absolutely no one to talk to. I'm walking and I see the Big Ben. I must be in London. I'm really mad as I walk down the street of London. I'm stuck and she is not here with me to go through what I am. I'm looking up and down the alleyways for something that might be useful. As I'm walking, I think to myself, these people have pretty cool accents. I'm looking through windows of shops and then I see it. The toy she had. It's in a toy store, but it was the only one in stock and it costs money. I walked into the store to buy the toy and then I remembered, I don't have any money. I go up to the lady at the cash register and I ask her if she can save this toy for me until I come back. She looked very familiar, but I couldn't put my finger on who it was. I don't think I should recognize anyone from 1999, though. She says yes, and I'm thrilled. I walk out of the toy store to find a job. By my surprise, someone is hiring a nanny. I go to the address and knock on the door. There stands two creepy parents with a rambunctious two-year-old. They interview me, and I get the job. It's been about two months since I've been stuck in 1999 in London. This child seems a bit demonic, and the parents seem like they're hiding something, 
I'm a bit curious of what they are hiding, but I mind my business and I don't let curiosity get the best of me. The parents have a guest house in the backyard, so I stay there at night and on the weekends. I see very bright lights from the main house every other day at like 3am, but I don't question it. I refuse to make any friends in London. I don't want to get too attached. I almost have enough money to buy the toy. I will finally get to go back home. I'm playing exorcist with the kid as the parents walk in. They ask me if they can speak to me for a moment. As they pull me aside, they tell me that they don't need me anymore. I'm not too disappointed, but I don't have enough money. The parents look at me like they thought I would look a bit sadder. They look surprised, then mad. I grab my stuff and rush out of the house. I didn't want to find out how mad they were. I go back to the toy store to see if the lady at the cash register still has the toy, and she does. I start to get excited to go back to 2020, even though it's trash. The register lady says the toy is now on sale. Obviously, I ask how much the toy is. Coincidentally, I have the exact amount of money that the toy is. I buy it and go into an alley to play with the toy to go back to 2020. Not shortly after, I see a dark silhouette out of the corner of my eye. It's getting closer and I get frantic. It grabs me and puts a bag over my head. They take the bag off my head and I see that I'm in a van. I look at the person and it's the same lady that was just the cashier at the store. I think to myself, who is she? Then it clicks. That's she. The one that had the toy. I asked, why didn't she tell me the truth about the toy? She looks furious. Soon enough, I'm getting choked. I'm yelling, why? And I start to run out of air. I pass out. I'm dead. This next story is by Luna, age 15, and it's called Don't Trust Strangers. The cold breeze of summer brushes past my bike fiercely, sending a chill down my back. I ride faster, trying to warm up. My legs begin to be tired, so I stop at an ice cream shop, leaving my bike right outside. I get a soda, and when I come back out, The tires are slashed. My heart drops and I realize I don't know how I'll get home. I can't walk. A guy looks at me through the window of his truck. He frowns exaggeratedly. Do you need a ride? I really don't like his vibe. No, it's okay. But he looks offended. All right, well, you're lost. Excuse me? I suddenly feel weird and taken aback by his pushy demeanor. Well, how are you going to get home? Sir, that's none of your business. He looks at me, eyes glassy, but not teary-eyed. It makes me feel guilty. Fine. Good. I'm just trying to help you. He smiles though it doesn't make it easier. I get in the truck and he has to move a big duffel from under the passenger seat so I can sit. Are you uh, going on a trip, sir? Yeah. He drives quickly, gripping tightly to the wheel wearing gloves, though it's a summer day. I try to relax because this really isn't a big deal. This just goes to show how nice this guy is. But soon, that changes. Sit down and don't say anything, he says angrily, suddenly switching to a different persona. The flashing red, white, and blue lights flash as he sighs heavily, rolling down his window. Sir, there appears to be blood dripping from the rear of your truck, the officer says. Ah, I have lots of wine stored in there, 
The officer doesn't look pleased. Well, let's have a look. The man reaches into the duffel bag, pulling out a knife. And suddenly, everything makes sense. I watch the man approach the officer with the knife, but the guy doesn't even notice his danger. He gets stabbed in the chest with a knife several times, the man grinning each time, and I run as fast as I can away. My long, slim legs carry me until a gas station comes into view, trying with all my might not to stop. His truck's still behind me. I run in and yell to the cashier what's going on, and we quickly go to the locked security room, and he calls 911. We both hear crashing of packaged goods and glass shattering and yelling, which makes me shake. The cashier whispers into the phone what's going on, and to make sure to bring a lot of people because he has a big weapon, and a cop has already been killed from suspected blood in the back of the truck. A few silent moments pass, and there's a bang on the door of the security closet we are in. I know you're in there. You can't hide from me, he says gruffly. I whimper silently, and the boy guides me to a bunch of cabinets where we hide. I fall into unconsciousness from all the worry and exhaustion from running two miles as fast as I could with no breaks, and the boy cuddles me and tries to comfort me. I wake to the sound of gunshots, and the boy looks a little more scared, holding me more tightly now. What's going on? I ask. There's been a few gunshots since the police arrived, but, but by the sound of it, The guy either hasn't gotten shot or he has, but he isn't giving up. Holy shit, I say, shaking. I'm so sorry this happened to you. It's okay. I just want us to be okay. We are okay. We will be okay. This will be over soon and we will go back to our old lives, he says, running his soft fingers through my knotted hair gunshots continue until it's sort of peaceful. I hear police say to check the area, so we go back into the store to talk with the police. Turns out, he was a murderer, and he was way older than he looked. There was a body in the back of his truck. It was a neighbor of mine from a few years ago. She supposedly went off with this guy on a honeymoon, and he killed her. The boy I met who helped me tonight hugs me, and he drives me home. He says a silent goodbye with his eyes, with pity, but also encouragement inside. And now I never go out alone. No more bike riding by myself. No more trusting strangers. That boy I met came to be my boyfriend. And we share the horror of that night. And it brings us together. Our next story is Blood in the Field by Anna. The love that asks no questions. The love that stands the test. That lays upon the altar. The dearest and the best. Blood-drenched beds. Blood-filled water and gore running through the tent. Bullets. No man's land. Gas. She was choking on the gas. The injured men were screaming for help. She couldn't get to them. Her own organs were crumbling inside her. Her chest wasn't floating. Bang. The deafening crash ripped violently through the tent, terrorizing everyone in its path. The smoke clotted the air, smothering the already sick men. The bullets distracted Ruth from the real harrowing issue of the doctor. The ghoulish physician came at Ruth with his rusty bone saw. Ruth looked for hope from the sky. All she could see was 
the sinister gloom coming ever so close. 1917, standing at the edge of the blasted forest, Ruth watched the horses as they hauled the cart. Their proud, noble bodies strained as they pulled the medical wagon. She felt a moment's recognition with the beautiful beasts, and she could have sworn their eyes locked. The moment was gone. Their majestic eyes were downcast again. The smell of iron from the guns, the smell of copper from the blood was inescapable. Looking up, Ruth considered the gloomy, empty sky. She thought of her brothers. Ruth was strong. Her tall, long-limbed figure made its way across the campgrounds. Ruth was pushed to her limits. The men and the beasts were pushed beyond their limits. The murderous mud challenged men and beasts alike. The earth itself was proving fateful for soldiers and animals in this war. She pushed her long hair out of her face, making it neat again. But now another card had arrived, and in it, the wounded men called out. Their damaged bodies were as bruised as their souls, no doubt. One of them moaned, and he cried for his mother. He was pitiful and miserable. Ruth went to him. The day's farm work had been tiring. It's this work that provides a living for the home. This had been Ruth's father's favorite saying for as long as she remembered. The work challenged and tested both Ruth and her two brothers daily. As she watched the boys handle the large horses, she knew that they were all strong because of it. Even her. Especially her. It would result in her brothers becoming powerful and mighty men of tomorrow. But it was 1913, and there was darkness on the horizon. Dark times. Everyone was ignoring what was happening outside the peace of lowland Scotland and the family farm, where it still felt like nothing could touch them. But not too far off, her brothers would be fighting for their country, voluntarily. She watched them. Charlie and Thomas placed the harness around old Rosie, with as much ease as anyone who'd grown up on a farm might. She loved how they knew exactly what they were doing when it came to agriculture. Charlie was older and stronger, so won any fights against Thomas. Charlie now did the heavy pushing at the back, shouting orders to Thomas to slow down or speed up accordingly. While Thomas was the more gentle one, dealing with the horse, keeping her going and making sure she did a good job. From the kitchen window, Ruth went back to her dishes. Later she would play, unaware of what she would see in future life. And yet, they are so alike, Ruth thought. Ruth looked at the soldier. In his face, she saw much of Charlie and Thomas. The young soldier had sharp features within, and his pale, sickly face was framed by dark black hair, matted with blood. He kept moving his hand up to his head, pulling at clumps of blood and hair. Ruth took his hand and placed it at his side. They moved him into the medical tent. He looked at her and all she could see was the gash from one side of his forehead to the other. It slashed straight down his face. It passed his eye and through his eyebrow to the other side. As she cleaned it, blood spurted out of it, hitting Ruth. I'm, I'm sorry. The soldier sputtered. Don't be... Ruth wiped her face and eyes. The cut was like a deep lock with no base. It was a sea of blood and tissue. Suddenly, the doctor ran past her. There were shouts of a turned-over cart, horses and men trapped. 
The tent fell into silence and every free hand ran out. Ruth was alone with the young soldier. She controlled her facial expression. However, she was shaken and suddenly terrified to be put under this amount of pressure to make him fighting fit again on her own. You're here now. You're going to get fixed up. But she now looked at his leg. His kneecap was smashed and fragments of bone jutted out of the flesh in torn pieces of tissue. The only way she knew how to keep him calm was by talking to him. Just like her mother had taught her. So, what is your story, my lad? Ruth questioned the soldier. He looked up towards her, searching blindly for her. Uh, I'm from a working farm. Uh, Dorset. I'm from a farming stock, too. She took a long piece of linen and began washing the wound on his leg. How old are you? I'm twenty. Uh. He shook suddenly in pain as Ruth placed the linen on his leg. I have a big family. And I'm here to do my duty. I wanted to do my duty. It was raining heavily, and Ruth swept her cloak about her. She walked out the school door and left the small one-room building with the highest of hopes, the lowest of lows, and everything in between. There were tears of happiness and sadness. Her father stood tall and proud. However, under his hard exterior was a man struggling to keep his emotions at bay. But Ruth saw in her father's eyes, tears just ready to let go. Her mother took her face in her hands. It's the thought of this wee girl going off and far away that worries him. Ruth then felt scared and very young. Her brothers had left for the war a couple of months ago. This made Ruth's departure a bigger event than it should be. Her parents looked at her with anxious eyes. Was she being disloyal to her parents by going? She wiped a tear away with the back of her hand. Ruth's crystal eyes gazed emptily out of the tent into the vast rolling sky, into no man's land. She hoped her brothers were safe. Taking out a clean handkerchief, she rinsed it, wiped the soldier's face. The wound was infected. It seeped yellow and green pus, and it stank. The previously handsome face was ruined beyond salvage. He stared towards the ceiling, hoping, perhaps, for some ease from the pain. However... Nothing was going to solve this. His vision was wasted. Ruth realized as he glanced blindly up at her. The murky gash oozed green grunge. The smell of discharge was pungent and it filled the air. His disfigured mouth gaped achingly. He spoke words that were senseless now. Ruth was supposed to help him. However... In this case, she could not. And no matter what she did, he was a lost cause. I was supposed to complete my duty and fight, he had said, over and over, for his country. The soldier reminded her of her brothers. It terrified her. Thinking of her brothers made Ruth feel sentimental and sad. How good her time was at home. How easy and simple life was then, when all she had to deal with was milking and meals. Her mother was a strong woman, and had always said that there was a dark world out there, and in the end, she had been right. 
The soldier's thin metal rose up and down now, making an awful wheezing sound. The sound of slowly giving up. His fearful eyes flickered, searching for hope. His clammy hand desperately grasped Ruth's. There was nothing more she could do. His grip grew limp and his eyes became vacant. Eventually, his chest choked and then stopped. He gazed, peaceful now, at the sky. Silence. Ruth then knew her work was over. She automatically felt regret. She thought of his family. The mighty sky was vivid and comforting in its heavenly vastness. The golden fields were calmly swaying in the wind, full of hope. Her family farmhouse waited for her. It stood proudly in the perfectly sculpted landscape with the sun rays beaming brightly onto it. All Ruth could see was the happiness that she held in her childhood. The cart trundled down the road, pulled by the graceful horses in perfect tandem motion. Ruth's mother and father were watching on in their usual cheerful manner. Even hard work was enjoyable. The light clouds then rolled by reassuringly. And in her sleep, for now, Ruth forgot about the horrors. And there's another country I've heard of long ago, most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. We may not count her armies, we may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart, her pride is suffering. This one is Fate by Mary. She was left all alone with the one woman who cared for no one but herself. Just the sound of her aunt's voice made Maya's blood boil in rage. The house was eerily quiet. Crows cawed just outside and early morning sunshine reluctantly streamed through the window. Maya locked herself in the attic, barricading the door with the junk and slumped herself in the far corner of the room. From the outside, floorboards creaked. The doorknob slowly turned. Maya was furious with the judge for granting custody. She was angry at herself, angry at her parents. She would have given anything to live as far away from her aunt as possible. Her thoughts vaporized as they pulled into the driveway. Lorraine's home looked well-kept from the outside, but the minute Maya stepped inside, she was greeted by Lorraine's cold, icy blue eyes. Aunt Lorraine barely said a word before she had Maya by the arm, dragging her upstairs and into the dimly lit attic. Maya knew the moment the tears threatened to stream down her face. She was truly alone. Don't you dare cry. The attic window was a small, annular casement, through which obscure moonlight radiated. It had a dim glow to it, as though it was uncertain of itself. The wind rattled the grimy panes, slanted wooden beams hung low as if warning her not to enter. They were suspended prison bars. The attic was filled with mountains of old stuff that sat there precariously. A musky, damp stench filled her nose. She focused on the setting sun as the world around her grew darker. The streetlights flickered. The rest of the world drifted further away as tears threatened her eyes once again. She shoved her fists into her eyes and shook her head. She had lost herself. She blinked, forced her pupils to adjust to the terrifying darkness, glancing around anxiously. The somber portraits stacked there stared back at her behind layers of dust and seemed to penetrate her very existence. 
Hesitant moonlight streamed through the cracked, foggy window, casting sinister shadows on the walls. In a burst of panic, she fumbled for the light. She flipped the switch frantically. The room remained submerged in darkness. Fear settled in the pit of her stomach. Outside, the wind sounded like laughter. The house was in dead silence except for the vibrating creaks and moans beneath her feet. She sank into the damp, single mattress and wrapped herself in the cold, wet sheets as they clung to her skin. Images repeatedly danced around her head. The endless, narrow road wound gently as the darkness circled around them. The moon, masked by the clouds, radiated rays of light, glistening with an angelic glow. The cold, wet window made the tension inside the car grow in discomfort. Her mom sat in the passenger seat, her thin, structured face highlighted by the moonlight, tired eyes fixated on the road. Her dad drove with glassy eyes down the spiraling back road. The tension in the air was thick, weighing Maya down. She sat silently, watching the stars as they twinkled dimly in the sky. The dense forest surrounded her in every direction. Heavy fog lay on the ground, making it hard to see more than a few feet ahead. The loud, distorted music now rang in Maya's ears, filling the silence with an eerie exclamation. Through the mistiness, two blinding lights came into view, quickly gaining speed. It all happened so fast. One minute, there was calmness. The next, she was spinning through the air. Still trembling from the memory, tears threatened her eyes once again, and the soft hum of her own voice bounced from wall to wall. I'm not going to cry. From below, Aunt Lorraine's voice bellowed its way up to the attic. As the door flew open, screaming deafened Maya's ears as her aunt barked, If you don't be quiet, you'll be next! The door slammed behind her, returning the room to complete darkness. Desperation spread from her core to her trembling hands. Fear and anger overwhelmed her. What was she to do now? What did her aunt mean by you'll be next? She thought back to her aunt's emotionless face. She had to leave. Hurriedly, she made her way around the attic junk, avoiding the creaks of the floorboard. She held the dimly lit candle, which danced and flickered in the darkness, making shadows appear and disappear. A creak, a murmur. Maya looked towards the old wicker chair as it rocked slightly in the draft. Fighting those tears again, she silently packed the few things she had and made her way down the splintered ladder. Her hands felt the moldy wood against her palms. The temperature seemed to drop as Maya lowered herself onto the elongated hallway. The darkness compelled her forward, inviting her into silence. Eyes awake and aware, she made her way through the endless corridor until she reached the cold doorknob at the bottom of the stairwell. Cautiously, she pulled the door open. The dark, shadowed garden came into sight. The moonlight shone through the trees and glowed with innocent beauty. The clear sky unveiled all the stars twinkling in their newfound freedom. She ran now, the sting of cold air in her lungs, for the first time since the accident. She was calm. From behind her, she heard a brief siren. Blue lights filled her vision. On the surface, the police department seemed tranquil. But as she looked closer, she saw people restlessly moving up and down the room. The seats were all identical. Rows and rows, blue chairs, audience, the police. The rough material rubbed against her skin, irritating her bare thighs. 
Seconds were magnified by the ticks of the clock above her head as she awaited her aunt's arrival. Tears stung her eyes. Finally, she let them fall. She sunk deeper into the soft humming of her own crying. She was going back with her aunt to the life she so desperately had tried to escape. This next story is Catabasis Tartarus by Adam. The gunky green trailer was tucked behind a crop of trees, hidden away from society. Little Stu wasn't supposed to know it was there, but he had known for a long time. It was over the hill, behind the family trailer, and even knowing it was there, you couldn't find it from standing on top of the hill. Standing on his tiptoes, Stu looked in through the grimy window. The small, messy kitchen was full of vats and beakers, tanks and tubs, some big, some small, but all very grimy and dirty. One of them had been thrown over the kitchen sink tap and had coiled itself round it the way superglue sticks to your hands just when you don't want it to. The vials were crammed full of hydrochloric acid and sodium hydroxide. The noxious odors required a well-ventilated face apparatus, and that was well-worn, hanging from a rusty nail, hastily put up there. The med kit was small, sitting on the window ledge, unused as yet. The prison was a colossal building. It was like the stonework was eyeballing the prisoners inside. Stu's bright blue eyes looked around as he walked into his new job. He hungrily scrutinized it all. He was eager on his first day. The cells were compact, like dog crates, and they contained the inmates in a claustrophobic way. The high window ceiling lingered gloomily overhead, blanketing the prisoners as if the gods of Olympus were looking down on civilization from above. Stu walked up the iron stairs and looked up at the cobalt sky that was visible from through that ceiling window high windowed. The clouds passed slowly over and the light disappeared for a moment, like a life over. Standing at the top was an old corrections officer. He greeted Stu, saying, You must be Stu Kendall. Sure am, Stu replied. Jim, Jim Pope. Nice to meet you, said Stu. The older man seemed friendly. He was balding and had a well-kept mustache. Stu noticed his tidy uniform, but he was overweight and wheezing slightly as they walked up the next set of stairs. The walls ricocheted sound, bouncing back the conversations of the prisoners. The dim, gateway-like doors were sealed shut and locked out the outside world with a clang. Pope opened the door to the staff changing room, nodding to Stu. His polished black boots squeaked cleanly on the changing room floor as he showed Stu around. Stu went to his locker, opened it, and hung up his jacket. He looked at himself in the small mirror hanging inside the door of the locker. His hair was neatly cropped, and his uniform was tidy. He felt proud wearing it. At the bang, little Stu woke with a start. He had fallen out of bed and was on the floor. His Barney PJs twisted around him. Had that been a door closing? A door opening? He held his breath in a dark panic for a moment. He knew that some of the neighbors in the trailer park were bad people, as Mom had said. He climbed back up and into a small camp bed. He was getting too big for it now, but he had no idea where he could possibly sleep when he did outgrow it. His room was a tiny box room, not really meant to be slept in. Just as Stu was drifting off back to sleep, he saw a gloomy figure sneaking past his door into the darkness. He sat up in bed, feeling his pulse racing. Had Mom come back? Without realizing it, He got up and started making his way towards the door. He wanted to call out to her. The figure moved, and he knew it wasn't her. 
It was his father putting on his jacket. Stu tried to stop himself, but something was forcing him on. He crept out and followed his father's groomy figure up the slight hill, leading away from their trailer. Jim Pope and Stu Kenville walked slowly past the cells. Stu was anticipating something. His constant awareness was meticulous. His baton was solid and ready. Like him, it was geared up for something. But instead, it was just an old man perched on a bench in his cell. He was reading The Adventures of Achilles. Pope urged Stu on. Walking out onto the terrace again, Stu thought the guards looked complacent as they clinked and clanked their way along the corridor. Following Pope, Stu glanced up at the inmates one by one. Finally, on the second last cell on floor one, he was introduced to Werner. Pope picked up his large steel baton and whacked the bars. The noise clanged and scattered through the prison, as if there was a monster lurking in the depths of Tartarus. Within seconds, a skull face emerged from the murky depths of the cell. The smooth, bald dome was deeply tattooed, and Stu thought it symbolized the creature's true nature. Like Kronos' son, his eyes were black, dim holes, like the endless expanse of space. Stu hid his fear, but felt the motivated evil that burned furiously inside those eyes like fire burning in pure oxygen. Yes, asked Brown. You have a visitor, Pope stated. I don't want to see him, said Brown. You sure? Last chance. He waited. As your lawyer, he's the only person in the whole stinking world who gives a crap about you, Pope said. Brown gave a low growl. He turned his back on them. Stu's so-called family home. This was a different trailer. This trailer had three small hole-like windows. They scowled out of the side of the house like Cerberus, seeking revenge on Hades. The grass around the trailer was dying, yellowing in discoloration. A filthy sofa lay outside, abandoned and rejected and forgotten. Inside, the couch had once been a milky shade of white. She had kept it spotless back then. Stu and her used to laugh when she let him jump up and down on its soft cushions. The TV was still there, though. It hung over the fireplace, ostentatiously, just like a deer's head. The PS4 was plugged in constantly. It was little Stu's only friend, after she left. Two days later, at 12.49 a.m., Stu and Pope were getting ready. You good? Stu nodded. Let's bring him in. This is always the best bit, Pope added. Stu suddenly felt a moment of disgust and was surprised at the otherwise pleasant Pope. The families of Brown's victims were there. They sat miserable, and heartbroken. They wept acid tears, enraged with their hatred. They watched with resentment. Some looked at the door, some looked at the chair. It was sitting there in the middle of the room as if it were the throne of Hades himself. It had leather bindings and a timber frame. It waited. It was patient. The guards stood there mutely and endured the tedious silence until Brown was brought in. He was escorted by two guards. Brown practically breezed in and looked at the watchers behind the glass, scowling at them with an unquestionable glare. The green rotary telephone was suspended on the wall, the wooden lever pointed upwards. Brown now held back slightly, and almost Imperceptibly, he held his breath for a moment. He approached the chair. He breathed out hard. The officers now expertly tied him down with straps and 
placed the black cloth bag over his head. Stu watched as Pope dipped a large yellow sponge in water, lifted it across and placed it on Brown's head. A small bead of water ran down Brown's face, as if it were his last fragments of life, running away from him, trying to save themselves. Pope placed the head strap on Brown. Brown looked towards the visitors, watching him about to die. Everything's got a price, he said softly. Pope stood beside the two switches. You ready, Stu? asked Pope. I sure hope so. Stu watched as Pope held on to the levers. The guards in the room looked from the clock to the phone on the wall. The clock struck 12.30. The phone didn't ring. Little Stu could see his father from the window of the Pontiac Firebird. His father loved that car, and he was standing there puffed up and proud, waiting for something. He had a knapsack with him. It sat on the hood of the car. Slowly, a dark figure emerged from the shadows and walked carefully towards Stu's father, who stood with his back towards the man. Stu was about to call out to his father, let him know the guy was there, when suddenly the figure pulled out a gun. The man pointed it to the back of Stu's father's head. The gunshot echoed and rang through Stu's ears. He slid down into the passenger seat and began to cry. He closed his eyes and desperately wished his mom would come back. Later, from the car window, Stu opened his eyes to see his father lying there, very still and soundless. Crimson blood flowed freely from the wound in his father's head, fragile and human. It had splattered onto the hood of the car. Stu looked at it, and it was as if the blood was the very waters of the river Styx. In those stories his mom had read to him, His hair was a murky black mess, matted around the wound. The blood had clotted to a dark, intense red-black, and it seeped thickly from the side of his head. His mouth opened. It was dry and cracked. When he spoke, his voice was afraid, but not in the slightest bit surprised, and he said, Everything's got a price, son. Everything. Pitifully, Stu's father's mouth gaped open, and with one lifeless movement, his body slumped to the dusty ground. The words rang endlessly in Stu's head. Everything's got a price, son. Our last story of the evening is by 14-year-old Sophie Della Chiara. This is Different. The bed was too warm for her. The covers were too big. And she knew it. Her mother did too, but sometimes she got scared that her only child would catch a cold. These covers were far too big for that girl's small, lanky body. And they were so, so heavy. She had been sick for years. But not sick, sick. That's not what the school called it. Or what her mother called it. They all called it being different. The girl presumed that being different had to do with the voices she heard brushing, the tapping, the footsteps in the attic. They all had to be a part of it. The wind brushed softly against the window as Mother walked into the room, interrupting the girl's train of thought. Hello, darling, said Mother as she opened the creaking door. The girl remained silent, 
peering through her window, down at the front porch. I just came to say goodnight. Do you need anything? Mother muttered softly as she brushed the girl's hair with her fingers. After no response, Mother got up and began to leave. I cannot sleep, Mother. The girl muttered before the door closed. He will call me again, and he will walk in the attic. He wants to eat me, Mother. The monster will get me tonight, I just know it. She mumbled in silent panic, whispering as though someone were listening to their conversation. I know. Don't worry, honey. You took the medicine, so the monster won't come today. Her mother interrupted swiftly. It'll be fine, okay? Good night, Connie. Mother smiled as she closed the door. The girl tried to sleep, but she knew what would happen. Although this was a new medicine for her being different, and it was supposed to stop the monster from coming, she had seen it before and had also talked to it, although it never answered. The hours passed, and to Mother's surprise, the girl didn't get up to retrieve her, to curl up in her bed, afraid. The night went on, as the pale moonlight flooded the girl's blood-stained bed, where a giant, shadowy creature feasted. Thanks for listening, and happy Halloween to many of you in parts of the world, since it is currently 1037 here in California, and it is Halloween many places by now. All right, well, thank you to all of my authors. Thank you to the adults in your life who gave you permission to be on the show and for encouraging you. Thank you for encouraging these young minds to be so creative. We left off with a, with a gross bang, and that was amazing. All right, I hope to see you all next year, and happy Halloween, everyone. Check out my two live streams tomorrow. That's Gurin Brothers on Instagram at 2 p.m. I'll be answering some questions and reading my cursed hat story. And at 7 p.m., I will be on the Let's Not Meet Twitch stream. And I'm so excited. See you there. Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. <laughs>